What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Go there, 9 a.m. Supervisor's name is Yolanda Rayson. A food pantry. Come on, Mr. Morris. They had me working in the mess hall in the joint for eight years. Then you should be good to go. I got two computer certificates. I took piano lessons. You don't see my ass up in Carnegie Hall. Be there 845. I'll cuff you on the prison van. Hello, I'm Aisha Harris, and welcome to another episode of Represent. So, as I'm sure you all know, it's Black History Month. And I have mixed feelings about this annual celebration myself, mostly because I feel like we only hear about the same three or four folks every year when we discuss it. You know, MLK, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, good old Frederick Douglass. But it exists. (laughs) And recently, I was lucky enough to sit down with a former member of the Black Panthers who is now an educator, writer, and filmmaker, Jamal Joseph. So we've got a little bit of Black history coming onto the show today. That clip you just heard is from his new film, Chapter and Verse, which features strong performances from the legend Loretta Devine and Omari Hardwick, who I'm sure many of you know from the show Power. And you'll hear us discuss Jamal's work. But before we get to that, up now we've got our latest installment of Guess Who's Coming to Oscar? (laughs) I tried, Berlin. I've been trying to come up with a good theme song for this, but it's not working. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe we should ask listeners if they have any. <laughs> yes, listeners. I'm trying to find a good theme song for this little mini series. So if you have any suggestions, you should definitely send them our way. <laughs> anyway, guess who's going to ask her? So this is the Sayonara edition in which I recently had the pleasure of chatting with Phil Yu, also known as the man behind the awesome blog, Angry Asian Man, and Yoko Kawaguchi, who is a freelance writer and author of the very interesting book, Butterfly's Sisters, The Geisha and Western Culture. And we talked about the 1957 Oscar-winning film Sayonara. Now, the film is set during the Korean War and stars Marlon Brando, doing a strange, over-the-top southern drawl for some reason, and Red Buttons as two U.S. airmen who fall in love with Japanese women while stationed in Japan and face discrimination from both the U.S. military and the locals. So one of the main reasons I wanted to discuss this film today is because Miyoshi Umeki plays Katsumi, the love interest of Button's character, and she became the first, and still to this day, the only Asian woman to win an Oscar acting award. Along with Phil and Yoko, we dove into the racial and gender politics of Sayonara and how Umeki's historic Oscar win fits within the lineage of Asian representation in American films. 
So thank you so much to both Phil and Yoko for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Yes, hi. <laughs> so I, I think we'll say this in the intro, but just in case, for now, I'll just point out that uh, Phil is on the West Coast for the listeners, and Yoko is, you're in London, or are you in some... No, I'm in Cardiff. It's a part of the UK. Got but, it, got uh, it. Yeah. I think this is actually our first uh, transcontinental interview so far, so this is exciting. <laughs> So to kick this off, first, I would love for uh, Yoko, if you could talk a little bit about just the sort of place we were at when Sayonara came out in terms of relations between Japan and the U.S. And you wrote a bit about it in Butterfly Sisters, your, your book. Yes, the film Sayonara was based on a novel by James Michener, which came out in 1954. The story is based in uh, Korea and in Kobe, Japan, and it takes place in 1951. Now, 1951 was during the Korean War. Japan itself was still under occupation by American forces after the Second World War. But by 1951, it was more of a, a, a base for um, American forces fighting on the Korean Peninsula. Now, the relationship is one that already it's the feeling of hostilities is, is, is um, ameliorating. And so there's more fraternization coming, uh, happening between Japanese people and the American uh, occupiers. And what James A. Michener was writing about was a sympathetic account of American servicemen who wanted to marry Japanese women and were facing all these uh, bureaucratic uh, hurdles uh, put in place by the um, American military and the State Department trying to discourage American servicemen from marrying Japanese women. And so the novel is a sympathetic portrayal of two relationships between Japanese women and American servicemen, one ends in tragedy and the other ends in great happiness. Right. And and we see that especially uh, in, in the character of Joe Kelly, who in the movie is played by Red Buttons and his relationship with Katsumi, who's played by Miyoshi Umeki. Uh, Miyoshi Umeki. Umeki. Miyoshi yeah. Umeki. Thank you. Uh, who actually is the so far the first and only... Asian actress to win the Oscar for the, for acting in either of the categories, Best Actress or Best Supporting. She won for Best Supporting. And yes. their relationship, when the movie opens, it opens at the beginning with um, Marlon Brando's character, Ace, being transferred from Korea to Japan after knocking down like several fighter jets and <clears throat> he's tired and burnt down so that so they send him to Japan instead. And so while he's there he's he meets uh Joe Kelly who is going to be married to Katsumi and they have a very interesting conversation. Look, Major, I'm gonna marry my girl if I have to give up my American citizenship to do it. Oh Kelly, you stupid ignorant slob. I mean go ahead and marry this uh Slant-eyed run if you want to. It'll serve you right. Now, wait a minute, Major. Don't talk to me that way. I won't take that from you or anybody else. I'm sorry, Kelly. 
Phil, you told me actually that you wrote a thesis on this on this film when you were in college. It wasn't a thesis, but I, I did write a a, a, pa- a paper on this in grad school. Got it. Uh, man, that was like a long time ago. <laughs> but when I wrote the paper, it was the first time I'd seen this film, and then I, I revisited again recently, you know, t- to talk to you. Yeah. And my my feelings about the film haven't changed too much. Actually, I haven't seen it again. You know, the, to hear sort of. Um, to, to think about it in the context of like this post-war era, and to hear uh, Marlon Brando's character say "Call her a slant-eyed runt," I mean, it, it is uh, you know, it, it's obviously said in the film to mark his ambivalence and his his antipathy towards the uh, towards the Japanese, which later will soften, you yes. know, and and you know, uh, as he falls in love. Um, but it, it, you know, to hear it, it, it's always jarring to hear a slur like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I would love to talk a bit about sort of the, especially Umeki's character, because one thing that struck me about it is that she doesn't actually say much in the film. This, this was my first time actually seeing it. I'd never seen it before. And I, I, I found it fascinating that she... I mean, not that you could necessarily count all of her lines on on one hand, but she's definitely she plays into the sort of submissive, very submissive and seen but not necessarily heard sort of character that plays into stereotypes about Japanese women and the way they hold themselves. For both of you, like what is what are the sort of things that this movie is doing in terms of the way it presents both Katsumi's character, and then you also have, on the other hand, you have Hanaogi, who is played, <clears throat> who is played by Miko Taka, and they both have very different personalities in a way. But I think they also could be seen as playing into these certain stereotypes that Japanese women have. Right. It's difficult to see how the the the, the relationship. Um, Grover's and Hanaogi's and then Kelly's and Katsumi's actually works because they're, they, as you say, um, they don't have much to say to each other. Katsumi is, is shown serving tea and, you know, um, submissive. I don't know. That is how you serve dinner or serve tea in, in Japan. Well, I guess the one thing, the one thing that stood out to me was like her giving him a bath that felt. Yes. That well, yeah. that that is well. That was a very uh, popular trope. It hap- It takes place in um, several sort of Japan-based movies, mm-hmm. and of course, you get it in James Bond as well. Oh yeah, the uh, bathing scene. I mean, it was one of those. It's a way, I suppose, that women were supposed to be taking care of their men, and it's a sort of a babying thing. You know, it's almost you know, pour she pours water on his head, and you know, scrubs the you know, scrubs him down, and mm-hmm. it's almost mothering and babying. And, and the thing about Katsumi is that she isn't a very sexualized person. And this is the th- interesting thing about Umeki's role, that Katsumi is a, is a is, she's cute. She's described as, ain't she the cutest thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but she isn't sexualized. She is described as wife. So she cooks, she cleans, she washes rinses her husband down in the bathtub. Um, Hana Ogi is very different. She is a career woman, very dedicated, as she says, to her uh, company and her career. Interestingly, she says it's only after having met Ace, the Marlon Brando character, that she feels she's felt that she can become fully a woman. Mm. And then she says almost immediately, 
I can be a woman with you and be a wife and a mother, as, it, as though being um, a full woman, you would expect that maybe, maybe that it, it's, it's, um, she's talking about her sexual awakening, mm-hmm. but no, it seems that to be a full woman is to become a wife and a mother. And in that way, Katsumi has already embodied the ideal. Right. right. You know, I, I think Miyoshi Umeki's performance is you know, it's quite naturalistic, and she's adorable, and um, she's actually quite good, I think. But, for, but the role itself is so... I, I, it's, it's actually really troubling and problematic to me just to see um, how, uh, how childlike she's treated, you know, yeah. um, throughout the film. And um, the thing about watching this movie is that there's so much... It's explaining about Japanese culture and so much, you know, like this is how you pour the tea, and like, you know, these, you know, these these theater troops, they do this, and um, the the men dress as women, and the women dress as men, like, and there's all this explained. It's like a tour guide like moments throughout the film, and I feel like a lot of the its depiction of of Hanaogi and uh, Miyoshi Meki's, I keep forgetting her name, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's informed so much of what. Western ideas of what Japan and Asia and Asian women, you know, are, you know, it, like that, that sort of those tropes still live on today, that the idea of the geisha, the subservient Asian woman, to, to me, I, I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot of this film that ha- actually hasn't changed in terms of its depiction of um, the way the West sees Asia, Asian women and Asia itself, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I want to come back sort of to the idea that you mentioned, Phil, of this movie being total like very much a tourist movie and very over explainery and and i think one of the things that the 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 big one of the big differences from the book is the fact that in the book hana ogi's character decides she doesn't want to give up her career and her career is as a she's part of this all women opera performance group and they're not allowed to date uh once once you uh, become once you get married, you leave the the group and you don't perform anymore. Um, but she decides in the book that she's going to keep that job and keep that career and continue to dance. And her and Groover go their separate ways. But in the movie, she decides, yes, I'm going to stay here. And you know, while that might be a a point of view that we are going to tell American women that you know, a place, a woman's place in the home. I do also wonder, in the same vein as, you know, the tourist we want to show, overshow and overshare and ex- overexplain, was this just a, a way, an attempt of the film to to show that two very different worlds, as they say throughout the film, how different everything is from America? Is that an attempt to show that they can still, despite all of that, they can still be together? Is it kind of like an overcompensation for harmony and interracial marriage i think it's <laughs> i know, you know it's a loaded question <laughs> yeah you know there's this this entire film is seen through the eyes of these of this white man you know what i mean he's the one who comes in um you know it's so weird to him but like through the beauty of this woman you know he begins to see the beauty of this culture and he, you know he's he's he can get down with that you know yeah. um and meanwhile he's here and he can save her from this, you know, this lifestyle um, that's lot she's locked into, you know, and all these forces are against them. But maybe if they can stick together, you know, they can overcome this racial prejudice. But of course, it does feel a lot like, you know, these these white Americans are coming in to save them from this from their circumstances. You know, mm-hmm. that also reminds me of the um, the only 
the only Japanese man of consequence in the entire film um, <laughs> yeah. who, yeah. you know, is, is, is not even played by, you know, a Japanese or an Asian man. You know, it's, it's played by Ricardo Montalban. He's Mexican. Um, who was Mexican? He's, yeah. And it's like, wow, what, what are the kind of crazy uh, sort of yellow faces happening there, you know? Um, and his character is actually quite interesting I, to me, you know, in, in the film. But it's too bad that right there, you, know, you also didn't get an opportunity to see an Asian man. What else is new in Hollywood? Uh, Asian man get uh, get a little shine, you know. It's interesting. I came across a Truman, Truman Capote profile um, that from the New Yorker that he did around Marlon Brando and when he was making Sayonara. So it's about Brando, but then it's also about the production of Sayonara. And Truman Capote mentions that they the, the production wanted to... They hired Ron, Ricardo Montalban to play the kabuki performer, but they, they, they apparently tried to get a actual kabuki star to mm-hmm. do the dance scenes. Um, And and the Japanese press was was not happy about it. One of the quotes is that someone wrote that doing that is like akin to asking Ethel Barrymore to be a stand in. Ethel Barrymore being the very popular, you know, Broadway show theater, uh, theater actress with a very Hmm. booming voice. Well, I also I also believe that the director who uh, Joshua Logan Mm -hmm. initially wanted Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. As Hanaogi. <laughs> right. And uh, it was only because she turned the offer down that they went looking for a um, Japanese actress. The interesting thing is that uh, it's, it's actually Miyoshi Umeki's background. The, the story is set in 1951, uh, although the film came out, the film was made in 57. Um, by 1951, Miyoshi Umeki herself had an established career. She had already started uh, making a name for herself as a jazz singer in Japan. Mm-hmm. She was already on her way to becoming a, a star. She had already performed in, she had already appeared in Japanese films. But in the film, she doesn't get the starring role of Hanaogi. She gets the, the innocent Anjoui sort of... Um, uh, role the uh, the housewife the cute rolling her eyes sort of sort of a woman so although she herself started out at a very young age and became a professional entertainer once she was in the states she was very much put into this Japanese doll like cast I mean that's the other thing is that. Umeki is not very well known today. And despite her being this, having this groundbreaking role and, and becoming the first and still only actress Asian of Asian descent to win the Academy Award, I would think we would know more about her. I, I had trouble like in prepping for this interview, even finding there's, I couldn't find a biography about her. I couldn't really find any like big, meaty profiles about her. She seems like a very much an enigma. And, I mean, why... i just love to know what you guys think about why perhaps her winning did not necessarily open doors for other Asian actors um, that came after her. Well, I think... Uh, well, So I, I have to say, personally, one of my, my favorite Miyoshi Meki role is in Flower Drum Song, mm. which is a musical that came out a couple years after. Yeah. 
Sayonara. And it was, you know, um, and it was, it, it's significant in that it was an all Asian American musical, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, you know, which is, uh, it's not, it's uh, not perfect, but it, it, I do have, it has a special place in my heart. But I do think that um, in, when you're asking the question, like, well, why didn't she blow up after this? Like, why isn't, why didn't the Oscar give her a higher profile, lead to more bigger roles and open the doors for Asian Americans? I think that Hollywood still struggles till this day with sort of trying to fit Asians to, to some sort of box to fulfill a role, you know, that role in Sayonara is very specific meant for a Japanese woman to be that, you know, that idea of what uh, Hollywood wants an Asian woman to be. It's either that or it's going to be the dragon lady uh, on the way other side of it, you know. And so to this day, I, f- I still feel like it's very, you know, those opportunities, they're just not being written, you know. And so, you know, it's, when you look at, when you just even look at this movie being made, you see, like, oh, there's going to be a bunch of roles for Asians in this in this movie. Great, but when movies like this don't come along very often, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's once in a while. And when I look at the slate of Hollywood movies, I'm like, oh, that movie set in China. Well, maybe there'll be some Asians there, but it's probably gonna be, you know the lead is probably going to be a white guy. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's the other thing is that that's this movie is about of such a specific time and. Especially, even though the Korean War is like just a backdrop, like how many movies about the Korean War are there really? Like we don't really talk about the Korean War that often. Yeah, this um, movie is barely about the Korean War. <laughs> barely, <laughs> it's it's mostly just about the miscegenation and and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I guess I guess. Well, obviously, I I think I know I know the reason. Like the reasons why you gave are are exactly it. Um, but I just, I just find it curious that she's sort of been lost to time that like we, I don't know how many people could actually name her or even know that a, an Asian actress has won an Oscar award. And so I just think it's really interesting. I mean, here's a fun fact. I tweeted this around last year's Oscars. This factoid is that more white women have won an Oscar for playing an Asian than an actual Asian woman has ever won, period. Oh, wow. Who, 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 wait, who? I'm trying to think. uh, So Louise Rainier in, I believe, The Good Earth, played in Yellowface. And then Linda Hunt in The Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, She played like a dwarf, like Asian boy. Um, And... And she won for that, you know. So mm. both of those roles were white women in, you know, quote, yellow face playing Asian. And they won, you know. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's a very interesting little factoid about Hollywood racism. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. Um, well, great. I think those are, I think we've covered Sayonara pretty, pretty well. Before we leave, I would love to know if you guys have any recommendations for Asian for film or TV that you think is doing a really good job at presenting Asian representation on screen. Phil, um, you know, for me, I will hold up. I'll actually hold up um, two TV shows, um, and they they seem like pretty traditional, but for me, they're kind of revolutionary. It's Fresh Off the Boat and Doctor Ken. Um, ah. They're two. Asian American families on TV at the same time on the same network, what? which is crazy. Uh, I know. Um, you know, fresh off the boat, it was it's it kind of broke open a door for that. But I, 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 a lot of people don't give enough credit to Dr. Ken. I think, and it's a very traditional multi-cam sitcom. You know, studio audience. Um, you know, it's it's a lot like joke joke. It's like it's a lot like setup setup joke setup setup joke that kind of rhythm. 
But I do think that they offer a lot of nuance uh, in this sitcom package about an Asian American family, a, a multi generational Asian American family, um, inter ethnic Asian American, Japanese and Korean. I've, I've, I honestly, when I watch it um, through all sort of the sitcom hijinks, I see flashes of my life in it, you know, like very specific flashes that I've never seen before in other shows. And so when I watch it, I'm, you know, there, there, there's a joke here or there where I'm like, whoa, whoa, somebody, whoever wrote that joke, they were writing from my experience is crazy, you know. So um, I, I, I think that that show, Dr. Ken um, and Fresh Off the Boat, they don't get enough credit for really sort of nailing certain nuances of, of um, Asian American family life and, and, and being immigrants and, and the children of immigrants in, uh, uh, in, in America. Good choices. Yoko, do you have any suggestions? Well, here in Britain, the situation is really dire. Um, I can't think, I can only think of, a, think of one um, East Asian British television personality. He is a, a, a stylist who appears on clothes shows, um, and he's very popular, but he's about it. There are very old, well-established Chinese communities in Britain, as you would expect, um, with a lot of people from the uh, south, um, the, can- uh, the um, Hong Kong, Canton areas, mm-hmm. and yet you would you would not notice because on um, on the media they are invisible. Well, thank you again to both of you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, on to my conversation with filmmaker and activist Jamal Joseph. Joseph joined the New York City chapter of the Black Panthers as a teenager following the assassination of Martin Luther King and was arrested as part of the Panther 21, an infamous months-long trial in which 21 party members were accused of conspiring to murder NYPD officers and attack several buildings. The group was eventually acquitted. Though later on, Jamal would spend another several years in incarceration for aiding fugitive party members. Since then, he's become an author, Ivy League professor, and a filmmaker. And his latest film is Chapter in Verse, a story about a man named Lance, played by co-writer Daniel Beatty, who must adjust to a rapidly changing Harlem after spending years in prison. We discussed how the film parallels Jamal's own life and how the Black Panther Party's goals for bettering society are still relevant today. Well, thank you so much, Jamal, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first, can you just tell me a little bit about the origin of Chapter and Verse? Because I know you directed it, but you also co-wrote it alongside the star, Daniel Beatty, correct? That's right. Daniel and I both live in Harlem. Daniel is an extremely accomplished actor and activist. And we had done some work, theater work together, but we wanted to make a film together and tell a story that we could tell uniquely from black men living in Harlem and living in a changing Harlem, Mm -hmm. a Harlem that's become two Harlems, one side gentrified with million-dollar apartments and multi-million-dollar brownstones and great restaurants, and the other side, those apartment buildings, those housing projects, those tenements where folks will never, and especially the young people, will never be able to to live in those condos or eat in those restaurants. Mm And also when we walk down the street, we we know as black men that every third or fourth black man that we pass in Harlem has been to prison 
um, this, or is headed to prison. Wow, the statistics are that high in, in Harlem. Yeah, they, they, wow. they are that high. And um, as we were sitting uh, in my living room talking about the story that we wanted to tell about Harlem, this idea of the third man really came to us in a strong way. And then we realized that as we were talking that I'm the third man in my family, that I spent a total of nine and a half years in prison, albeit for my involvement in the Black Panther Party, Mm -hmm. and that Daniel um, in his family, his father, was the third man who spent years and years in prison and his older brother. And um, and Daniel is a graduate of Yale University, graduated with honors and has a, a graduate degree from American Conservatory. I'm a Columbia University professor, been on faculty there for 18 years, a full professor. But yet when we walk down the street and we see cops, you know, suddenly come to a screeching halt, there is something in us because of our experience growing up, our experience around, uh, you know, in these communities that make us go, could it be us? Mm-hmm. I mean, so Daniel plays S. Lance Ingram. And like you said, he's coming back into this changed world, this gentrified world. And it's not just that, but then you, then you also have the the younger generation of the younger black people who are on the same sort of path that he was that landed him in jail. And you spent, what, was it five and a half years at Leavenworth? Yeah, five and a half, five years and nine months at Leavenworth. And then prior to that, I had spent time in prison. So right. a total of nine and a half years in prison. Right. So obviously, I see parallels between your experience of of coming out and, and being in prison and and Lance's experience. And what was it like for you when you came out? Like, how had Harlem changed then? And, like, how is that different from what it is now and how it's changed since then? Well, when I came out, Harlem was hadn't hadn't been gentrified yet. This was in, like, the 70, late 70s? I came, I came out uh, for the last time yeah. in 1987, so it's 30 years this year. Got it. And Harlem was a war zone, a literal war zone, because of the crack epidemic, because of landlords that had walked away or people that were speculating on real estate. So literally, it looked like bombed out London, like a bombed out European city after a Nazi bombing raid, crumbling, garbage, rats running in the street, buildings semi-occupied. And then every night you would hear gunshots because... uh, you know, gangs were battling, stuff was, you know, stuff was going on. And that's what Harlem was like. And the response to that by the uh, Giuliani administration, by a lot of them, was to um, put more cops on the street. The, and that, and this is the same time, keep in mind, where we had drug laws that came into effect, you know, the Rockefeller law. And then it was also um, stuff that happened under the Clinton administration that ramped up the rate of arrest and incarceration. Yeah, the stop and frisk that we have today. The stop and frisk. And so when I came out of prison, America was number three in the amount of people that it had incarcerated, about a half a million people. And we were number three behind the then Soviet Union and South Africa. In 30 years, we've become number one. Undisputed champs, approaching 2.5 million people. And not surprisingly, um, most of them black or brown, People. Yeah. Did you see Thirteenth? Yes. Duvernay's? Yeah. She talks a lot about about that and all the all the many hands that are in all all the many hands that it yeah. in and it, and it had been in since slavery. So it's modern day slavery for real. You know, Ava Duvernay talks about it. Michelle Alexander. Mm-hmm. But 
it, it, it comes to this idea, and, and I'll connect it back to Lance, right, what he's dealing with in chapter and verse, that we are captive by a government that considers us, in particular, black men, their property. Mm-hmm. During slavery, this is what it is, and we're good for, for labor, and we're good for, for that. And so when you have policing that is ideologically there to protect the property, to protect the wealthy or their interests, uh, to, to make an example of anyone that they perceive as a threat, here we have this continuation mm-hmm. of this notion that we are property and that we are less than. So our young men in the film are dealing with something that's been passed on from generation to generation, that they are less than, that their path to manhood is just within the boundaries of that housing project. How can I stand up, fight for myself? How can I have the kind of love that my family can't give me, that society doesn't give me? And Lance is coming out of prison trying to fight against that notion that he's less than. But he's an orphan child. He grew up in shelters, school-to-prison pipeline, and he's trying to come out with a modicum of manhood with some skills to fix a Fix computers. He can't get a job. He has a couple. He comes out with a couple of certificates. He, he comes out with certificates yeah. and skills and really knows it. But no one will give him a chance, you see. And so that's the struggle that so many people people go through. Um, but it's systemic. You know, it's not enough just to say there's a few bad guards or a few bad prisons. We're talking about institutionalized racism connected with this idea of capitalism, that it's okay uh, to continue to, to make money from our suffering and our oppression. Right. I mean— like Lance, you were lucky enough in that in your time in prison, you were able to get an education. Yeah, degrees in, in psychology and sociology. Right. And you and you talk a little bit about, in one of the TED Talks you did a couple of years ago, you talked about... And so I spent time in prison. And when I got there, I got a piece of great advice. I was there for... My activities connected to the Panther Party for weapons charges, for hiding people out who were on the run from the police. And as I sat in the big yard, an older prisoner came to me and he said, young blood, I want to give you a piece of advice. He said, you can serve this here time or you can let this here time serve you. And with that, I understood in the words of Malcolm X that the penitentiary had been a university for many a man and woman that even when the body is locked up, the soul can remain free. I found that really fascinating because it seems like that's not, we've kind of gone backwards in terms of the prison system and that there are not as many resources like the ones you had when you were in prison. Is that correct? Or in terms of like educating and in in many ways through educating, rehabilitating the people who are in jail? Like, Yeah, it's really uneven. It's according to where you are and what state you're in. Right. Uh, New York State remains pretty progressive around college education and job training and those skills. It should come as no surprise the the rate of recidivism of people who return to prison drops drastically in proportion to the amount of education and job skills that a person has. That's that's a no-brainer. This is how people wind up uh, in the system in the first place. But, for example, the Leavenworth Federal Prison... Uh, no longer has the college program. In fact, I visited um, uh, KU, University of Kansas, uh, where I got my degrees uh, a few years ago as an esteemed alum. And the, the, the vice chancellor of the school took me on a tour because, you know, I, I, at that time I was chair of the graduate film school at Columbia University and a full professor. They didn't realize that they had that program and that I had earned my degree on the Leavenworth campus because there's nothing in the records 
that indicates that it was a a, a diploma earned in prison. You know, oh, it's, yeah. it's not like my Jayhawk is is on the front of my diploma holding a peace sign. You know, behind <laughs> prison bars, going "What's up, peace." <laughs> And they didn't realize that. And mm-hmm. it's a shame that the institution that was bold enough and progressive enough to do it uh, didn't remember. But a bigger shame that the Federal Bureau of Prisons that really profits from prison labor, uh, Unicor, which is their workforce program, is the only agency or only program um, in the federal government that actually makes money. When you look at any other program, that the federal government has, from the military to anything else, it, it, they, they, they all consume, right, without producing. Yeah. But the federal prison system produces fiber optic cables and furniture for government offices and T-shirts and underwear for the military. And when you pay someone 15 cents an hour, 25 cents an hour, it's not surprising that it makes money. So there are other states that then, you know, people have this idea that, you know, when they, when they want to be a tough candidate, you know, I'll get tough on crime. And then, so not only are we going to lock more people up, why are we, quote unquote, coddling these prisoners, mm-hmm. right? And those programs get cut. And it, is, and it will feed into the cycle of continued arrest and incarceration. It doesn't break anything. And then we have examples all over the world where uh, other societies, other civilizations understand that, that locking someone up for the rest of their life, locking them up without... Uh, the chance to learn, to grow mentally, physically, spiritually, doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Lance's character and his relationship with the younger generation when he gets out. He sort of becomes a, he wants to become a mentor to Ty, who's played by Kadim Diop. Did I pronounce that correctly? Absolutely. Okay, great. And Ty is a high schooler. He is the grandson of Miss Maddie, who's played by Loretta Devine, who is wonderful, as always, in the movie. Ty! What did I tell you about when you pull them pants? And you two, you pull up them pants! What you mean, Grandma? You don't know me like that now? Boy, if you gonna show your butt out, we see often you have like the My Brother's Keeper program that Obama started and this sort of we want to try and connect this disconnect or fix this disconnect between the older black generation and the younger black generation. And is that something that you felt was something that existed when you were younger, when you were Ty's age? Was there that same sort of disconnect between the older generation in terms of just not just understanding one another, but activism and, and, and what we could possibly do to help each other out. Growing up, and this is, you know, even before I, you know, became part of the NAACP Youth Council when I was 13 and then joined the Black Panther Party when I was 15, um, on the streets going up between the Bronx and Harlem, there were older guys who looked out, who kind of made sure that you got off the street corner at a certain time and that if you were a kid who were making good grades or had a, you know, was pretty good on the basketball court or playing touch football, that you didn't do certain things, you know. You could come to the pool hall and shoot a couple of games and go home, but you weren't going to go out and hang out and drink wine and smoke weed with with, with some of the older kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kept an eye on you. People talk about the level of violence going up. When you had the bigger gangs, the super gangs, 
you know, like the Egyptian lords and the Blackstone Rangers, they had a sense of when they would fight, when they didn't fight, who controlled what territory. And when they got broken down, even in the subculture, that sense of mentorship and rules that we don't do it this way went away. So now where you might have had one gang control one area, you have 12 gangs trying to prove themselves. Everybody's trying to rep. By broken down, do you mean the the police force? Like Absolutely. Or, okay. And so when you went to prison in those days, there would be folks around that would give you a book to read and, you know, tell you when you got there, this is not the way to live. When you get out, don't repeat this, young brother. You know, mm-hmm. now prisons, um, that, that structure is broke down. And a lot of the older prisoners, a lot of the OGs have passed away or got released. And so there is that sense that it's a gladiator school. Yeah. And that sense that I have to continue to rep the same way we, you know, we did on the streets. So this becomes neo-colonialism where we're oppressing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this is what um, Lance is up against when he comes back out on the street because he did come from that culture where you listen to the older guys. And he does try to, you know, at a certain point he's trying to lay back and not get involved. But then he's got to step out to the younger guys and go on like, check my name, you know. My name is Sir Lance Ingram. Sir Lance Ingram. <laughs> But everybody knows me as L, or Crazy L from 118th Street. I want you to check with your five-star generals. Have them check with the older heads in the joint. Find out who I am. Whatever, Paul. And um, you understand why I got the right to talk to you, and I'm going to give you some advice. And he tries to do it by the rules of the street. This is relates to the t- title, chapter, and verse, because, you know, when Grandma, uh, you know, your grandmother knows the Bible chapter and verse, right? You can't get to any part of the Bible that grandma doesn't know. She may know the Bible better than the preacher. And when I was growing up, that was also slang for knowing the streets really well, that you knew a chapter and verse. And he tries to do that, but the structure has broken down even on the streets where you listen to the OGs, where you get more props or more stripes as a young gang member from not listening to an OG or maybe even taking out an OG. And that's what Lance finds himself up against when he's trying to help these young brothers in a particular save time. You, you tell this story about when you first joined the party, the Black Panther Party, in which you went there thinking in order to join, you had to kill a white person first. And so this is a show about representation and about images and, and seeing oneself and, and seeing others who are not necessarily the, the quote-unquote norm or the traditional or the mainstream. And... I'm curious as to, like, where you got the notion that you had to kill a white person first. Like, was it the media? Was it the cops? Was it other black people? Because I think that you, that story really kind of crystallizes to me the his, the way the history of the Black Panther movement is often twisted and, and made to seem way more violent than it actually was. You know, after Dr. King's assassination, you know, people were mad and got radical and um, I, I remember, you know, being on 125th Street, caught up on the fringes of the rebellion, saved by some men that I, that I later learned were Panthers, but they just were these militant black men that stood between me and some cops that were trying to arrest me for no reason. And coming to school the next day and announcing to all of my friends that I was going to be a black militant. I, Eddie Joseph, didn't <laughs> even have the name Jamal, was going to be a black militant. And one of my good friends was... Uh, was a white kid, a Jewish kid named Paul, Paul Kirshner. And Paul said, um, Eddie, I don't know if you can announce that you're going to be a black militant like it's a career choice. 
Like he could be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was like, no, boy, you watch. You don't get it. So as much to uh, to prove to myself, you know, I had to prove to Paul. So I kind of was looking for was, quote, unquote, the most militant group on the scene. Yeah. And a news report came up about this new black militancy. And, of course, there were uh, images of Stokely Carmichael and H. Rat Brown, you know, and Stokely saying black power, this new concept, and images of the Panthers storming the state capitol in Sacramento which with guns to protest that they were changing the gun laws because the Panthers were legally carrying shotguns and, and rifles policing the police. And the Panthers responded by storming the floor of the legislature. And you saw these powerful white men ducking and not knowing what to do and these black men standing, disciplined, and Bobby Seale talking about, you know, the right to bear arms. And then the news reporter said the militant Black Panther Party, the ultra-militant, there was that word militant. And then the news reporter said, and uh, please stop the Panthers' cars, their vehicles, and there were more guns and communist literature in the trunk. And I was like, they're crazy. They got leather coats. They got guns. The man said they're communists. They're crazy. And I want to be one. <laughs> so my friends and I got together, and someone found a flyer of the Black Panther office uh, in Brooklyn, the secret headquarters. And if you, you'll know about the Panthers. It was the exact opposite of being a secret headquarters. It was a place where food was given away, where clothing was given away. It, it was turned into a health clinic with volunteer doctors and nurses on the weekends. But no, we were going to the secret headquarters of the Panthers. And literally, it was three teenage boys, you know, attracted to an image, not quite knowing what we were getting into. So we go in and again, and I'm sitting in the back of, 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 of the Panther office and there's all these cool older brothers and sisters with their leather coats and army fatigue jackets and African galas. And now to put in perspective, they were older to me because I was 15, but we were very young. They were 18, 19, 20, 21. The average age of someone in the Black Panther Party was 19 or 20 years old. Mm. And um, the person running the meeting, which we call a political education class, which was explaining the Panther 10-point program, which talks about we want freedom, the power to determine the destiny of our community, full employment, decent housing, better education, nothing about killing white folks. Self-defense. Self-defense. Yeah. You know, an immediate end to police brutality. Right. Yeah. And the murder of black people, point number seven. Uh, I'm not hearing this. My heart is pounding, and I jump up, and I was like, choose me, brother, arm me. I kill a white dude right now. And he calls me up to the front of the meeting. My heart's pounding. And he reaches into the bottom drawer of this old desk. And I was like, oh, my God, he's going to give me a big damn gun. <laughs> and he hands me a stack of books. Autobiography of Malcolm X, Soul and Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, Wretched of the Earth by Fanon. Uh, and we all carried the little red book, Quotations from Chairman Mao. And um, uh, I think this is a test, right? So I said, excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me. And he said, excuse me, young brother, I just did. Right. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, he said, young brother, as I'm walking back to my seat, he said, of all these racist police that are brutalizing people, beating people up, locking people up, shooting people down, if they were black and the people being brutalized were white, all of these avaricious, greedy businessmen, capitalists that are ripping the community off with high prices, rotten vegetables, spoiled meat, if they were black and the people being ripped off were white, he said, and these jive-time fascist politicians, he said, if all of them were black and the exploited and oppressed were all white, would that make things correct? 
And I thought, and I said, no, sir, things like would still be wrong. And he said, that's right, young brother. This is a class struggle for human rights, not just a race struggle for civil rights. Study those books so you know what the revolution is about. So 15 minutes in the Black Panther office, I got disabused of these notions and, and started to understand what being a Panther was about. But it's interesting that, as you said, that 50 years later, you know, whenever I go, a lot of places where I go speak, those are the first two things that I have to address with folks because that's the image that was kind of projected. That's what was used to make most of America think that it was okay yeah. for the cops to frame Panthers, to kill Panthers, to uh, uh, to bomb Panther officers, you know. But, but uh, you know, historically that's what has happened when we've tried to rebel, you know, uh, the, the system and the media tried to criminalize Dr. King, certainly tried to do it with Malcolm X, with anybody that's resisted, you know, Paul Robeson, Marcus Garvey. As you go back and just look at the the allegations in the indictment, right, and and I guess to the oppressor it is a crime to want freedom. Um, but to our people it should something to be celebrated and embraced and, and to create a mass movement. It's not just to lift up one or two leaders, but for all of us to, to come that. Fanny Shakur ta- taught me something very powerful when I was 15 years old, she said, Jamal, we're here because we love the community, not because we hate. And we do hate oppression. She said, and our real goal here is not to make everybody in the black community in Harlem, Brooklyn, wherever, Oakland, in the Panthers. Our real job, if we do our jobs, is to make the Black Panther Party obsolete because the whole community will understand the possibility of struggle and liberation and become revolutionaries. Well, thank you so much. I ask all of my guests this final question before they leave, which is, can you remember the last time you saw something on screen, film or TV, and something you weren't a part of yourself in which you felt represented? You felt as if you saw yourself. Oh, there's, uh, without a doubt, uh, it's Ava DuVernay's documentary, The 13th. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in tears when I saw that film. And... um, uh, because it, it, it not only spoke to my personal experience, but it spoke to a generation behind me, with me, and coming after me, what we're going through in terms of mass incarceration and modern-day slavery. That is a great choice. I was I was bawling by the end of that movie, the, the last few minutes. And yes, it's, it's a great, great choice. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. It's Again, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you so much. So as I'm sure you all know, this show is a podcast and it's edited and we cannot include everything and we have to cut things for time. But there was one final point that I thought was important for you all to hear because throughout the conversation with Jamal, he kept coming back to this idea of whenever a historical leader becomes significantly radicalized in in a certain way, they tend to be cut down right when they start talking about class structures and trying to bring everyone together regardless of their race and bringing them across party lines and, and class lines. We talked about Martin Luther King and how he was cut down just around the time when he started protesting the Vietnam War and also labor movement and labor party issues. And also someone like Tupac, who around the time of his death was trying to bring rappers from both the East and West Coast together to create the One Nation Project. And we'll also include a link to that in our show notes for you guys to check out. But so here's Jamal discussing a similar arc with Fred Hampton, the Black Panther Party leader in Chicago. The Young Lords, which was the biggest Puerto Rican gang in Chicago, 
Fred politicized Cha-Cha Jimenez, and they became the Young Lords Party. And then he started talking to the Blackstone Rangers and the other gangs. And the Chicago police saw, and the feds and the government saw that what Fred had done with the Young Lords, and they said, if he is able to get the Blackstone Rangers and the other big gangs to become revolutionaries, to adopt this Panther revolutionary ideology, we're outnumbered, right? And also he's organizing labor with black liberation and all of those. And this is why Fred was killed in his sleep at 21 years old. And so they were able to look, they being the government, look ahead and just saying, if, if, if the Panthers are made up of folks like this, if all of these groups become political and revolutionary, they're a threat. And so the same tactics were used. And they were targeted in the same way and maybe not even aware, at least in the Black Panther Party, we realized, you know, we were taking up the system, critiquing capitalism, organizing folks and other people being hit because the government wanted to attack them before they even got took that next step. So a little something for you to think about. And I think we need to be careful about the way we remember our history and the way we allow other people to tell our history. And I think the point that Jamal made about Hampton and about Tubac and about MLK just shows that history often repeats itself. And we are probably living in a moment like that now. Chapter and Verse is now playing in theaters across the country. And we'll be sure to put a link to how to get those tickets and also the showtimes in our show notes. Thank you so much to Phil and Yoko again for joining me on this week's edition of Guess Who's Coming to Oscar? I'm still trying. Please send us your thoughts on how we should (laughs) do this lovely, lovely uh, theme song. And thank you to Jamal very much for joining us to give us a little Black History Month lesson about the Black Panthers and the way we remember our history. As always, you can find links to everything we've discussed here in the show notes. And you should definitely, definitely subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts in case you haven't already. And please, please, please be sure to rate us on iTunes if you haven't already as well, because those ratings are very important for us. Next week, we will be discussing West Side Story, and a familiar voice will be joining us and returning to the show, Tiffany Vasquez. Very much looking forward to having her on and talking about one of my favorite movies and putting in the context of Oscar So White. Represent is produced by the lovely and amazing Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is Chief Content Officer of Panoply, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. Oh, and don't forget, you can also email us your thoughts at represent at slate.com, and be sure to tweet at us at hashtag Oscars Represent. The music you are hearing right now is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Until next time.